Uh, the topic of my discussion this morning is the enduring encounter of Christ. This is the uh, last sermon and our discussion on encounters with Christ, most of them coming from the Gospel of John. Uh, out on the street and at family gatherings, uh, by the water cooler at work, we know there are topics that we are supposed to know we should avoid. Things like politics and religion, global warming, straws, <laughs> tweets, yeah, don't go there, um, football teams. These are topics that we avoid because they are complex, and the same thing is often true in the context of church life. Some things simply are difficult to understand and have historically been a source of division. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I noticed that in the church times there's divisions. Well, you know what? Welcome to humanity, okay? This is us. We don't, as Carmelo told us, I think about a year ago, we don't come to church because we have it together. We come to church to get it together. We come into the presence of God to hear truth that can literally change and transform our lives and fix the sickness and the brokenness and the weakness that we all tend to experience. So if this morning you came and you're struggling, we want you to know that you're amongst friends. Sadly, this topic of avoidance of difficult things it's true in the context of church life in relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. One writer has said he is the most abused person of the Godhead. For he is either underemphasized for fear of abuse or overemphasized for fear of neglect. When I read that, I was like, wow, some people can say things better than me. Okay, listen to that. He is either underemphasized for fear of abuse or overemphasized for fear of neglect. I have lived on both sides of that spectrum. After you know, this March, I've been here 30 years. And after 30 years in ministry, you, you, you ride all these various circumstances and theological issues that you work through over time. And that statement, I think, captures the struggle that often we have in the context of church life with the powerful, crucial work of the Spirit of God. It gets, over, uh, it gets overemphasized at times because people just get odd. They get untethered from Scripture as a result of emotionalism or shallowness or imbalance, often inaccurate teaching. In many circles, the Holy Spirit becomes the weird uncle, right? We know he's in the church, but he's the one that we don't talk about, okay? Because of the extremes that, that just, they weird people out. It's just the way that it is. I want to challenge you this morning to not let confusion rob you of the power and precious promise of the coming Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us in John 14. If you didn't turn there yet, you can turn there quickly. John 14, we're going to look at verses 15 through 31. I want to challenge you to not let confusion rule your mind. We need to remember that experience is not the final test of truth. And that the aim of Bible study, our study of Scripture, is not to protect our position. The aim of Bible study is to understand what God says. And then to align ourselves to that truth. There are many times in my experience as a pastor where I've had to make adjustments in my thinking, in my belief, because study of the Word of God has pointed in a different direction than my prior understanding. And that's fine. 
Our goal as believers in, in the context of church life, in the context of preaching and teaching, is to be biblical Christians. Okay, that's the, the stated aim, goal, and purpose that we aspire towards. This morning, I'm not going to preach a topical sermon about the Holy Spirit, meaning I'm not going to get texts that say the things that I want them to say and come to a conclusion about the Spirit of God from something I put together. Okay, this morning, my desire is to work our way through a passage of Scripture that will give us a clearer, powerful, better understanding of the aims and work of the Spirit of God in our life as the children of God. We need to get back to God's Word. We need to lay out clear biblical teaching from the words of Jesus. In this text, that is the inaugural text on the ministry of the promised Holy Spirit. The context of this discussion with the disciples is John chapter 14, obviously. If you look at the first verse of the chapter, you're going to find that the disciples are in a season of profound struggle. Why? Well, Jesus has just in chapter 13 told Peter that he will deny Christ three times. The drumbeat of crucifixion, burial, and resurrection is regular as you work your way through these portions of the Gospels. You also find out that Judas has been sent forth to complete the betrayal of Christ. So the disciples are in a, in a fascinating state of mind. Jesus says to them in John 14:1, don't let your heart be troubled. Here's the truth. There are circumstances in our life at times that cause us to doubt the sufficiency and sovereignty of God. Sometimes circumstances pressure us. They weaken our faith. And we need to get back to Scripture to find ourselves refilled with the promises of God. This text places a massive emphasis on the role, the crucial role, that the Spirit of God plays in relationship to our spiritual health. And I believe that Christ's aim in this text, if you look at the very last verse, verse 31, is, or verse 27, is to bring peace into the life of his disciples in a context that is stealing peace from them. His role is crucial to our spiritual health as believers. Let's read John 14, verses 15 through 31 together. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, comforter, helper. You're going to have various translations here. We'll come back to that. An advocate to help you and be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he lives in you or with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's beautiful, isn't it? We're welcomed into this dance within the Godhead, into this incredible, infinite relationship. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, Jesus says, is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to them and make our abode with them. That's the promise. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. That's the answer to Judas's question. 
These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not let them be afraid. The theme that overwhelms this text is the theme of loving obedience to Christ. Empowered, driven by the Spirit of God. That is the distinguishing mark of true believers. They love to obey Christ even though their obedience to Christ is often imperfect. So I want us to look at two thoughts. First, the promise of the indwelling spirit, and then secondly, the ministry of the indwelling spirit. This final, ongoing encounter that we have with Jesus by the Spirit. So let's unpack this first verse, verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to ask the Father for the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and he, the Father, will give that to you. And what does that mean? What it means is the distribution of the Spirit's presence is a work of God. It is not something that is conjured. It is not something I earn. It is not something I deserve. God's personal presence is a gift from God himself to us through the work of Jesus Christ. He is also in this text, not only a gift, but he is also the advocate. And you're going to notice that this is the name that is applied to the Holy Spirit five times in the book of John. It never occurs in any of the other Gospels. Okay, it is exclusively a title that John uses to describe the work of Jesus. It's used five times. It can often be translated things like paraclete, which means one called alongside to aid and assist. Okay, it also takes on themes like helper, counselor, one called alongside. But the main thrust of this title for the work of the Spirit is that he is the one who aids and enables believers to live a supernatural life for the glory of God. One of the best ways that you may think about it is to think about the term mentor, uh, also to think about the term personal trainer. He is one who by the power of God takes personal interest in our progress as believers. Verse 16 goes on to give us an understanding of his identity. Okay, verse 16 says this, I will give you another advocate, which I don't want to get original language-ish on you too much, but this, the, the adjective that's used here, another helper, indicates that he is another of the same kind. Okay, so that the nature of Christ and the nature of the Holy Spirit are fundamentally and essentially the same. Which is to say that, and we understand this from Trinitarian theology broadly in Scripture, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In this text, Jesus is promising the indwelling personal presence of God himself in the life of the believers through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. So he is another of the same kind. He is very God who has infinite resources. And here's what I want to say to you as well. 
whenever I get into the context of understanding the infinite attributes and characters and qualities of the Godhead, I always want to admit that there is mystery. Okay, none of us has all the teaching about the Holy Spirit nailed down and clearer than everybody else. Okay, what we must strive to do is to, is to gain a, a, a clear biblical understanding of what God is promising and what God is doing as we see it in Scripture. And there are times that we may be in the realm of our opinion about how He's working. When that is the case, we at least need to admit it. Okay? So we're going to lay out this morning what I believe are the rather clear biblical teachings on the work of the Spirit from this text. And I want us to see how they apply to and affect our lives. So he is, in this sense then, God's personal presence. And that's the thought I want you to get out of this introductory portion. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell because he is in fact God himself. As he is present in the life of a believer, he is for us God's personal presence. That is an overwhelming, rich thought that I hope you will meditate on, think about, and let it deeply encourage your hearts. Now, we enjoy that presence of the Holy Spirit now in, 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 in a way that is somewhat hard for us to grasp, right? Because it's not tangible. During the singing portion of our worship, I was standing up here alone, and I had the thought in my mind, I don't know where my wife is, okay? And then all of a sudden, I realized that she was with me, okay? And I, I, so I knew she was in the building, and there's a sense in which sometimes we feel like, I know that the Spirit of God is with me, but I like it better when I can see evidence of His presence, okay? And so when my wife came and stood beside me, all of my doubt about where she is or how she was doing went away, okay? The same thing is true with the Spirit of God. Now, in a fuller way, Jesus anticipates that in John 14, 1 to 3, right? He says to his disciples, I'm going to send you the fullness of my presence through the Holy Spirit, but one day you will realize that in a fuller, more concrete fashion. In my house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you so that you may be with me where I am. So what we know of the Spirit of God through His presence in our heart today is a foretaste. It is not the fullness of God's design. It is part of God's design. It is glorious and powerful, but it is just the beginning. Okay? God is preparing a place for us where we will live with Him face to face. That's why the Apostle Paul said when he thought about and talked about the Christian's experience, he said, now we see in a glass dimly. Right? Meaning... I have the presence of the Spirit. I know God personally through that experience, but it's not as clear as it one day will be. That's what Paul says, right? Now I see dimly, then face to face, so that we are always living in a bit of an already, yes, we have the Spirit, but not yet face to face. Does that make sense? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand the purposes for the coming and indwelling of the Spirit in the life of God's children. And what I want you to do is to meditate on the ministry of the Spirit as Jesus teaches it in this text, that He is God's promised personal agent to powerfully aid in growth, progress, and ministry. Okay? He is God's personal agent, God's personal presence, who Father sends into the heart of every believer, the Bible says. 
right? So 1 Corinthians 12 says, we were all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. Romans 7 says, if someone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. There is a massive assumption that covers the New Testament scriptures, and that is that if you know Christ, the spirit of God is dwelling in you. You'll see that as Jesus promises the presence of the spirit. He does not promise it to certain disciples. He promises it to all. And as you read through Scripture, you'll find that every believer is coming into a personal, knowing relationship and experience of God's presence by the person and power of the Holy Spirit. So what are the ministries of the Holy Spirit that we should treasure and enjoy? Now, verses 15 to 17, I think, give us the first indication. The Spirit of God comes into Tim Hoff's heart to make me like Jesus. Okay, the idea of an advocate, a mentor, a personal trainer, one who comes alongside to assist and empower, is this idea. He comes with a purpose, and that purpose is to make Christ evident in our lives. I want you to look real quickly down to verse 31 of this text. I want you to see the obedience of Christ that Jesus is calling us to in verse 15. I want you to see it described as it relates to Jesus. It says, he, and this, this is a little difficult, he, Satan, comes to take Christ towards the cross. Okay, and that's the part I want you to see. So Jesus knows that, that the, the work of the evil one is underway. The end of that will be that Christ ends up dying on the cross to bear the price for our sin. Jesus, knowing that, moves towards Jerusalem so that the world, notice what it says, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now, here's what I know. If you come up to me after the service and say, that verse actually describes me, I'm going to call you a liar. Or I'm going to say you're really ignorant. Okay? If you think that you always do exactly what the Father has commanded you, Okay, that is the aim of Christian living. That is not the reality of Christian living, right? Our goal is not perfection. Our goal in Christian living is progress. Our perfection is found in Christ. The Spirit of God comes to encourage us in progress towards that ultimate perfection, which I will never achieve in this life, and I need never achieve in this life. Why? Because Christ is my perfection. My standing with God is not rooted in my performance. It is not destroyed by my failure. It is found in the personal work of God so gloriously spoken about in this text. You see, our our hope is found in what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, I am going to send another of the same kind like me who is with you physically, but now he will be in you spiritually. He's going to take up residence in your heart. He is an advocate the NIV translated, I think, it translates it, I think, very well. An advocate to help you, to assist you in doing the things that you find yourself always failing in. Can you relate to that? When I, when I think about that, when I think about my persistent weakness and failure, my heart says, God, I need help. And Jesus says, I send him. I sent my personal presence in the person of the Spirit of God to assist you in this difficult, long walk. My aim is to shape Christ in you so that you will more and more look like Him. 
Why does he send the Spirit of God? Here's the simple answer. Because the obedience that Christ models and that God rightly requires goes beyond human effort. Our striving, as the songwriter says, is failing apart from the intervention of the Spirit of God who takes Tim Hoff's weak, anemic efforts and accomplishes something that I cannot take credit for. Does that make sense? So you and I are trying, we're striving and failing, but the Spirit of God takes that effort, that surrender to His presence, and produces something that honors and glorifies God. And I hope in your heart, every time that happens, you get a flood of humility over your life. And you point upward and say, to God be the glory for the things that he has done. Let that be our heart. He comes to shape Christ in us, something we could never achieve on our own. He enables, he is the agent of change. Paul will later describe this in Philippians 2. Here's what you'll find. In the Gospels, you find the teaching about the Holy Spirit fundamental ministry. He's going to come and live in you, and he is an agent of help and change. Paul will later say in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with an understanding of how weak you are, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, so that as you and I surrender to the amazing work of the Spirit of God in our lives, we find that God begins to do things in us that we look at and say, I could not do that on my own. I was at the gym the other day. And uh, so I'm, I'm like trying to be reasonably healthy, okay? So that, that's what I'm striving to do. I was watching. I just wanted you to know why I was at the gym, okay? That's why I'm saying that. And I go to Planet Fitness where there are no lunks. So there's no bragging. You can't drop weights. So they turn on this blue flashing light and everybody looks around for who the lunk is. I honestly thought to myself, sometimes in the context of church life, in relationship to the work of the Spirit, there are a lot of lunks. People that attract attention to themselves by assuming they live on a higher plane than you and I live on. May God help us. Well, as I was watching this circumstance, I saw this one guy who was built differently than me. He, he, was, he, was, he was a force. I mean, I... This kid was probably 19, 20 years old. And I'm looking at him like, how do you get arms like that? Like, my sleeves are loose. I mean, this guy would have filled up an extra large shirt. And I'm like, wow. But I realized something. I realized that along with him was a friend that he was coaching. A man of less, much less substantial build and acumen. Okay? And I, I was watching what was happening as he sought to help this substantially weaker individual experienced progress. Sit on one of those inclined benches, grab the, the weights in his hands. I don't know what they were. They were heavier than he could handle. But the guy that he was with, when he would hold the weights in his hands on that bench, he would stand behind him, grab his wrist, and allow him to experience what he was longing for. 40-pound weights, okay, whatever it was. I don't know what it was. But that big kid stood behind him and enabled him to do something that on his own he could not achieve. To do what? Not to discourage him, obviously, but to give him a sense of what that feels like, to train him, to mentor him, 
Folks, that's what the Spirit of God comes to do. He comes to take our weakness and make it strong as it is surrendered to Him. And I want you to grasp this very beautiful truth. The Spirit comes to form Christ in us. And as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that endeavor, sanctification, victory, transformation are the rewards that God pours into our lives as we surrender to the Spirit who comes to shape Christ in us. Because we remember that our progress is not by might, it is not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Folks, if today you're discouraged, if today you're believing the lie that your life can never change, this text aims to tell you something different. It aims to proclaim to you that you can be better than you are today by the help of the Spirit of God. He is God's agent, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, unlimited in resources. And he comes to humble us and take residence in our life so that we say, Lord, all to you I surrender. I want to encourage you this morning to defeat the lies of the evil one, to realize that progress is possible, even in a life that sputters and stops and starts. God is able to do more than you could ask or think. And I want you to know that this morning. So the Spirit of Christ comes to shape Christ in us, to form Him. Secondly, He comes to assure you of His unfailing presence. You see, the fear on the part of the disciples is what? If Jesus dies, chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And that's something that they struggle realizing. Why? They get stuck on the fact that he's going to die. And they have, they have no context apart from Lazarus for understanding this thought of resurrection. The thought of a dead Savior leaves them feeling orphaned. You know how an orphan is created? An orphan is created in tragedy normally left destitute and exposed to circumstances by the death of their provider. That's how an orphan is created, if you will. I don't like saying it that way, but that's, that's the reality of it. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. You have fear that in my dying, you will be orphaned. Jesus' promise in verse 18 is abundant, strong, and clear. He says, end of verse 17, he says, you know him for he lives in you or with you and will be in you so that by the presence of Christ, the spirit of God was with the disciples, but after the resurrection and from Pentecost forward, he will be in you. There is a move from present to indwelling. Okay. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, when I'm with you, you're great. But when you guys are on your own, you're a mess. You, you struggle, you fail, you deny, you, they're a mess. Jesus promises his in, internal dwelling to transform them. He also says that this internal dwelling is an unfailing presence of God. I won't leave you as orphans. Instead, I will come to you. That is the promise of verse 18. Now, why are they struggling with this? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, before long, the world will not see me anymore. 
Why? Because he's going to die. And after the resurrection, Jesus is no longer showing his glorified resurrected body to the world at large. He's manifesting it to the disciples who apprehend and know ultimately what has happened. An amazing, miraculous thing. He is manifesting himself to them. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In my death, it will appear that I have left you. But I'm coming back. And that is a, 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 a powerful thought that is meant to encourage, boost, and sustain the disciples in this situation of incredible struggle. Verse 19, he says, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Death, you will see me. Resurrection. Because I live, you will live. On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And all he's doing is piling up line upon line so that we understand the glorious privilege that we as believers have. We are invited into the context of the Godhead by the Spirit, and we enjoy the fullness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Okay, and I just, I, this is a verse that in the past, it kind of mystified me. What does it mean that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Well, if Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus by the Spirit, where are we? We're in the Father. Does that make sense? And what that means is, this, this eternal Godhead that we struggle to grasp and understand, there, there's, there's an invitation that's given to believers to come into this eternal relationship as sons and daughters of God who will never be orphaned. Which is to say that this promise of the Spirit, verse 16 says, Jesus says, I'm coming, or I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you forever. It is an eternal relationship, therefore we can never be orphaned from it. Which is to say that the death that Jesus dies is overcome by the power and resurrection of the Spirit of God. And in Romans 8, Paul makes this observation that I think helps to understand this. He says, what can separate us from God's love? His answer is nothing, because in Christ we are more than conquerors, because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will in fact quicken our mortal bodies. Even death itself cannot separate us from the love of God. Our encounter with Christ is an enduring encounter. And our encounter with Christ is the personal presence of God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit comes to reveal Christ to us. And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful portions of this text. Look at verse 25. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to move to here. He says, all this I have spoken to you while still with you. Now, the implication of that statement is, this is truth you guys need to know. Because in a few days... I think from this text, it's about two or three days. Life is going to get amazingly difficult and hard. Christ will be taken from them in betrayal. He will be put on, he will be judged wrongly, put on a cross, and give up his life and be dead. And the disciples will feel orphaned. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit to assure them of the resurrection, but he's also sending him to do two things. Notice what verse 25 says. He says, all this I have spoken while I am with you, but the advocate, okay, the promised Holy Spirit, now 
Now we know that the advocate is the Holy Spirit. Okay? The one who comes along to strengthen is, in fact, the Spirit of God, very God Himself. Whom the Father will send in my name, He will, and here's the promise, He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. Okay? Do you remember on occasions in the gospel, the disciples are sitting back listening to the words of Jesus, and sometimes they say to him, that's hard to understand. Okay, there are parts of this text as I went through, I was like, man, that's, that's hard to grasp. It's, it's hard to get my arms around spiritually and mentally. Here's what Jesus' promise is. The Spirit of God is coming to teach you, and that idea is to clarify truth about this work of the Spirit and the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Okay, he's going to make clear, personal, and applicable the teachings of Christ that that are to be recorded in Scripture. Secondly, he will remind you, that is, to bring back to mind at the right moment. There's a promise of that in Matthew 24 and 25, right? When you're drugged before the magistrates, and accused of being a follower of Jesus. Don't fear. Don't be afraid about having the words to say. The Spirit of God will give you the words to say. He will load you with truth because He is the Spirit of truth. So the promise of this text is very simple. It's captured in John 16, 14 very clearly. It says, He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Okay, so all the things that Jesus had taught that at times caused the disciples to say, huh, that's hard. What does he mean by that? After the resurrection, Jesus goes through more of that truth. And what does it say? It says the light goes on and the disciples understand. The Spirit of God comes to do what? He comes to make much of Jesus and to clarify truth about Jesus. His fundamental and primary ministry is to glorify Christ by taking from what is mine from Jesus and making it known to us. This ministry of the Spirit of God is spoken about by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 12. Here's what the Bible says. It says, No eye has seen and no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Meaning, laying hold of eternal truth is not the result of intellectual inquiry. Okay? It's not the result of me mentally trying to get it. Okay? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. There is, and no mind has comprehended or understand the things that the Spirit of God has spoken. But you understand these things because God has revealed it to you. It reminds me also of 1 Corinthians 12. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord in a meaningful way except by the Spirit. Okay, meaning to make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord of my life has indeed transformed, changed, rebirthed, is always attributed to the work of the Spirit. So that the hope that we have when we preach the Word of God and we call people to trust in Christ That when we're doing that, the hope is not that you will be intellectually smart enough to get it and that other people are unfortunate because they're not smart enough to get it. It's not the way that it works. I can't see, mine can't comprehend the things that God is preparing for those who love Him. He is 
working out something glorious in the gospel that aims to change our very existence. I think it's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.21 says this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open deeper and deeper inside to give you insight into the glory and revelation of Christ so that you may know supernaturally what you cannot know in the natural realm. And so Paul prays this over the church in Ephesus. He, pray, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open, that the Spirit of God may make true for you things that you know intellectually, but he wants them to be true deep in your heart. I need to remi- be reminded of Christ's work in relationship to the gospel on a regular basis. The Spirit of God comes to clarify and remind me that my hope is not in my performance, but it is in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we as Christians hold dear. That is the work of the Spirit, to reveal Christ in all of His glory, in the full magnitude of what the cross accomplishes. The Spirit of God is repeatedly communicating that into the heart of believers that are weak and struggling and frail. And by that work, He makes us better than we are on our own. The last thing that the Spirit of God does is this. He defeats stubborn doubt and nagging fear. Do you ever experience this in your life? You know, folks in our church family in the last couple months have gone through a lot of difficult circumstances. And I have to tell you, sometimes that ministry of encouragement, that ministry of reaching out to people can get difficult. Why? Because sometimes things seem to pile up in a way that you can't take. Most of us have probably been through circumstances like that. It's fascinating to me that by the Spirit, Jesus aims to defeat that stubborn, nagging doubt, that nagging fear, by reminding us that by the Spirit, And by the work of the cross, you and I have peace with a holy God because of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Now, remember the context. The context is disciples troubled, 14.1, and then also the end of verse 27, where we're looking, okay? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Why, Jesus? Because peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. I give in a supernatural way. Folks, there's two ways to understand the peace of God. One is, the, is, is that we are at peace with God because Christ through the cross has removed the consequence of our sin, the judgment we deserve, so we can move boldly into God's presence. That's peace with God, right? But there's also the peace of God that comes from His personal presence by the Spirit. And the Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts to assure us of these glorious truths, to transform us and to make us what He aims for and wants us to be. So the end of verse 27, He says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I can remember years ago uh, taking drives and getting lost. And I don't know about you, but for me, 
when I uh, experience getting lost, I don't find it very comforting. I had this happen to me if, about a week ago in the city of Philadelphia. I, I have a friend that has a business down there, and there are parts of Philadelphia I know that I probably should not be driving through at certain times of the day. And I made the mistake of getting into a place I probably shouldn't have been in. Okay? And for me, it, it, it's disorienting. It causes fear. It causes anxiety. It frustrates me. It does all kinds of bad things in me. I remember about 25 years ago, I was with a friend of mine named Bob Boucher. We'd gone up to Wayne, New Jersey for a golf tournament, and we were traveling home, and we got lost, I kid you not, for an hour and a half. Okay? I want to tell you what. That, I was ramped up. (laughs) Get home and say to my honey, just stay away from me, because whatever comes out, it's not going to be good. Okay? It's not going to be good. Stopping at gas stations, realizing that most people that work at gas stations in the orb of New York City and Bergen County don't know English. So you're stopping to get help, and they can't help you. It's not their fault. They just, you can't communicate with them. And then God allowed people to discover something called GPS. Right? Now, GPS is, here, here's, years ago I was preaching on this topic, and this, this don't, God's personal spirit, okay, that honor, I kid you not, that's the thought that came to my mind as I was preaching my sermon because I wanted to use an illustration from navigation technology, okay? Now, here's my relationship with GPS. I put it on, and I put the proper address in and push the button that says go. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the map, and I'm like, huh. Now, he, this is proof that I'm stupid. <laughs> I have regularly ignored the GPS because I thought I knew better. I didn't realize that the GPS knows things about the shorter route that I don't know. And it was guiding me around it. There are times in my life that here's my big problem in relationship to the Holy Spirit I don't listen. I don't listen. Or by doubt or fear or sin, I grieve and quench the Spirit of God. I belittle the Spirit of God because I think I know better. That's why the promise of the indwelling Spirit is a beautiful promise, a beautiful reality. But if you don't listen, you don't benefit from His presence. So Paul says to us, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Instead, walk in, keep in step with, surrender to what the Spirit of God is saying. And when you do, that shaping of Christ in you will be completed in Christ. And the fear that I can't make progress will be destroyed by trusting in the power and presence of the Spirit of God. But if I don't listen, I am simply very foolish And I am not going to enjoy the ongoing permanent encounter with Christ that I have by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what's the test of any ministry? What tells you if a ministry is on track? What tells you if an individual, a preacher, is on track? What tells you if they're on track is do they make much of Christ? 
Do they talk about the glory of the gospel? Does it saturate and permeate their teaching? Because that's what the Spirit of God is doing. He is persistently making much of Jesus, magnifying Jesus as hope, magnifying Jesus as Savior, magnifying Jesus as guide. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. And it's the way that we can test any ministry. People come, Pastor, what do you think about this person? I don't know enough about them. Look at their teaching. I had a friend call me the other week and said, hey, I went to see so-and-so. What do you think about that? I said, at the end of the day, did you feel attracted to follow Jesus more? Because that's the acid test of whether the guidance is from God or whether it's not. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The aim of it is to make much of the cross. And the Spirit of God's work as we partake of the elements is to proclaim Christ's cross work as our only hope until He comes. That's the message you should be hearing from the Holy Spirit as you, in communion, proclaim Christ's death as our only hope. As the Spirit reminds, as He exalts, as He teaches, as He clarifies the work of Christ, makes it more precious to you, more amazing to you, more fascinating to you, and fills you with a passion and amazement that says in the, in the taking of the Lord's table, Father, thank you for what you've done for me. The words of Christ's word do this in remembrance of me. Maybe here this morning you've never trusted Christ, but you sense, as a couple people have recently within our church family and have indicated on cards that they have personally trusted Christ. Maybe you sense today the Spirit of God calling Maybe you sense him making Jesus' work on the cross real and personal and effective for your sin. I want to encourage you this morning. If you sense that the Spirit of God is drawing, respond. The Bible says if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond, receive, partake of the work of the Spirit of God, and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. But the aim of communion is for believers. It's purpose is to give me an opportunity to remember all that Christ has done for me. The truth is, Tim Hoff can grieve, quench, and ignore the Spirit of God. And maybe that's the case for you today. Maybe you're living in a season of weakness, of defeat, because you're not trusting God. And I'm going to encourage you this morning, maybe you just, as we pass the elements out, maybe you need to say, God, forgive me. I have been living with the Spirit, but not by the Spirit. I've trusted you. He's present, but He's not filling and altering my life. I encourage you this morning as you receive the elements as they come by, that you would take time to say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for my reluctance. Forgive me for my rebellion against what you're trying to do in my life. And then eat of that bread and drink of that cup and celebrate that in my brokenness and in my weakness and my sinfulness, there is hope because the Spirit of God has come to make clear the teaching of Christ. That in, in Him there is hope for sinners just like you and I. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we Share in the elements of communion this morning. I pray that your word would be abundantly clear by the Spirit. I pray that the message that you desire to speak to us by the work of the Spirit today would be transformational. And I pray that we would go from this place no longer grieving and quenching, but responding 
and surrendering. God, this is the only appropriate response we can give. And if there's someone, Lord, that does not know you, I pray that today you would get, grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they would know you and trust in you alone and then enjoy the fullness of your spirit. Bless the communion table to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.